um, our text today, uh, which is Matthew 7, um, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by your fruits. You could be seated. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you get to be an example of what a good fruit is, or that you are our example of what a good fruit is. God, we thank you that you have fulfilled a good and true prophet. We thank you for your word that warns us against destruction and doesn't leave us. And in hard texts like this, God, we are thankful that you are faithful in loving us enough to tell us. God, I pray that we are faithful to your word and that we are committed to seeking truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is uh, part two of hard texts for the church. Um, Today is going to be a hard text, uh, but what we know about the word of God is All scripture is the word of God, and so we get to enjoy this text as well through Matthew 7, uh, 15 through 20. Uh, There was a period in my time, in my life, that I lived with my mother. Um, My mom has always been the louder, uh, more prankster part of my family in comparison to my father. And uh, I remember one time we were... um, we usually had family outings or hangouts pretty often, but I remember one specific time where we had um, a night that we were going to watch a movie. And when um, anytime there's good movies, there's most likely good ice cream as well. And so my mom decided to pick uh, my sister's favorite ice cream, which is cookie dough, and um, buy some chocolate syrup. But at the time, um, there was chocolate syrup, um, or there was two movies that came out. There was The Hulk and Spider-Man. And... Um, one of the things that the Hershey's chocolate syrup was doing was um, making red chocolate syrup and green um, chocolate syrup to match the movies that had come out. And so my mom decided to buy these two just for fun um, and uh, put them on the ice cream. As we sat down to prepare to watch the movie, um, I remember my mom was serving the ice cream to us and um, she made each bowl. She brought them one by one. I don't like chocolate, so I didn't get any. Um, but um, she, she serves to each of the children. And little did we know, my mom was planning this prank on my sister, who doesn't take pranks very well, um, but we enjoy it. Um, and so instead of putting chocolate syrup, the red kind, in her ice cream, she put ketchup in it that looked similar. We didn't really know what was happening until uh, my sister took a big bite and uh, we heard her angry voice. We all started laughing. There was no reason my sister shouldn't have trusted my mom. Uh, She was always trustworthy. She's my mom. Um, And so she just took a big bite. She ate it, and she didn't know what she was getting into. The text in Matthew 7 today, we're going to be talking about professional pastors and people who are serving Scripture or serving their own texts to people, and they don't know what they're eating. 
They're serving this food to people and they're eating and they're eating and they're eating. And yet they don't know that what they're eating is not healthy for them. So before we really dive into what a false prophet is, we first have to know what a prophet is. If you come from different denominations or different backgrounds, you might think that the prophet is your pastor. You can consider um, a prophet of someone who tells the future, which you might hear on the news sometime. Um, Some religions would go as far as to say that Jesus was only a prophet. And if you work in the financial world like me, we're not talking about the profit you make when you put stock in an Apple product. We're talking about the prophets in the Old Testament, the New Testament. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to list many different examples um, of what a prophet looks like in the Old Testament, New Testament, mostly the Old Testament. And um, please, if you guys, I'm just going to run through these. So if you want the scripture for each of these, please come to me. I would love to just send you a list. There's a lot of it. So if you can follow along, I'll send you the list later. We can talk about it more um, in each passage here. A prophet in the New and Old Testament is described as someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord himself. Though they do so in many different ways, we first need to be clear that the prophet is gifted by God, is gifted by God, with the ability to speak on behalf of the Lord. The prophetess Deborah predicted victory, pronounced judgment on doubting Barak, and even identified the right time to attack. In 1 Samuel, Samuel was able to see into the future by vision and to ask God for thunder and rain. Samuel led in victory over the Philistines, and God uses him to anoint kings. Gad and Nathan served as prophets to the king. Elijah and Elisha offered critique and advice for the kings. Abraham was one of the first prophets, and Deuteronomy 18 described Moses as a model for the coming prophet Jesus. All the prophets that we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they have similar characteristics. So what I'm going to do is go through some of the characteristics that they have as well. Like I just explained to you before, the first and most important characteristics that the prophet has it was, a, it was that it was marked and gifted. It was a call from God. To be a prophet wasn't just anybody off the streets, but God called the prophet specifically. Attempting to prophesy without the call was false prophecy, which we're going to be talking about today. Prophets received a word from God in different ways. Direct declaration, visions, dreams, or an appearance of God, which... We see in that famous story of the burning bush. Prophets spoke the word of God. They were primarily spokespersons who called his people to obedience. Prophets relayed God's message by deed as well as by word. They worked symbolic acts and served as living parables. For example, in Hosea, Hosea's marriage taught about God's relationship with Israel. They were living parables. The prophets also performed miracles that verified what they were saying. In other words, they practiced what they preached. While some prophets like Moses and Elijah worked many miracles, all prophets occasionally saw a miraculous fulfillment of God's word. This miracle working also included healing. Lastly, prophets also conveyed the word of God 
in written form. So in all that to understand, when we, when we take prophets uh, for what they are, we understand that prophets have a very specific role by God. God calls them to this role, and it's important. So when we take, for example, false prophecies or false prophets that Jesus is talking about in, in Matthew 7, we understand that false prophets aren't just anybody on the streets just saying bad things. They claim to be somebody who God has called to do something honorable in the sight of the Lord. So in 15, when it says, in verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We have prophets in our midst who are, are, are spewing fa- falsehoods to people that are ultimately sometimes hard to tell if it's truth or not. Jesus describes it as sheep's in a sheep in, or wolves in sheep's clothing. You find that sheep um, in Scripture are often um, used as a way to describe the church led by a good shepherd. Oftentimes when you see sheep talked about in, in, the, in the Bible, there's always an antagonist as well, whether that be some type of wild beast or in our case, the wolves. And ultimately, in this text, Jesus isn't talking about just regular wolves. He's talking about ravenous wolves. They're playing a part that they inwardly are not. In my last year in my undergrad, I had a class, this was last year, my least favorite class of all time, international politics. It wasn't my least because it was international politics. It was my least because of what we had to do in the class. Um, we had to play the simulated game for the whole semester. This game um, consisted of the professor providing you into a, or placing you into a group, which, as we know, group projects aren't always the most fun. But he placed me into a group. It was three young ladies and myself, and none of them cared about the class. So starting off this group project, it was great. Um, ultimately, what the game was is that we had to make a country. Each group had to make this country. You name it what you want. My country's name was Cote de Atlantis because it was at the corner of Africa and, or on the, west, the east, west side of Africa. And um, you had to pick a role. Each person in your group had to play a role. For some reason, they told me that I was going to be the president, which I didn't want because I knew it would be more work. Um, and then you have somebody that is in charge of the army. You have somebody that's in charge of the social parts of the, the country. And you, you play all of these roles. And another part of it was war. So you're really playing. It's not just regular old Sims. You're really playing like war, like you're destroying your country um, or other countries. And, and the reality is, is this, this game was the only thing we did in the class, which means that if we didn't do well in this game, we didn't do well in the class. And granted, I was a senior I'm about to graduate. And I remember in the beginning when um, people started picking what type of politics they would be using. Uh, some started picking uh, countries that had dictators. And so those are the people that you would watch out for. And so you started becoming friends with other people that were not dictators and ones that you could rely on to help you with military and help you with money and help you with building schools and, and fending for your, your country. 
And I remember at the end of the year, there was this one group who you just knew, like, their personality was that they they were going to have a dictator in their their group, dictatorship. And they were about to overrun the world, um, and my country was first. And um, I'm really competitive, so even if this wasn't based on my grade, I wanted to do well in this. And so I was getting all the friends. I was trying to get everybody, like, you're on my side, you're on my side, you're on my side. We're going to build this big military, and then they're not going to be able to do this. And when it came down time to war, the one friend that actually was committed to me was the one friend that told him everything, everything that I had in my, my storehouse. He betrayed me. I was hurt. I was mad. He disguised himself as somebody who was worthy of being trusted, and yet he told everything that I, all my knowledge and all my possessions, he gave him all of it. And so when it came down to, time for it, for his own selfish desires, he tagged teamed with the person that was going to win the game. It's quite impossible for wolves to disguise themselves as sheep. But Jesus is putting into a picture a warning about those who you may think is is a true prophet, but in fact is false. They aren't just passively false or false prophets. They are ravenous wolves who seek to steal, kill, and destroy. Just like last week, we talked about the wide and the narrow road. Like I said, these, these next, this last week and the next couple weeks are just hard passages to talk through. And last week, it was hard to hear that the people on the wide road to destruction weren't necessarily the people that we just assumed were blatantly sinners. Some people that we w- wouldn't be able to tell the difference between whether they were a Christian or not. That applies here as well. There are prophets in our midst, in our world, that are hard to tell whether they are true or false. Oftentimes, people think this text is talking about obvious false prophets. Though there are obvious false prophets that are easy to point out, the ones that Jesus is talking about here are those who specifically lead you to the wide road without you even knowing it. Sometimes, the false prophets honestly don't even know it. Subtly but surely, you start to go down the wrong road. The ones that are obvious, like the Pope or the Dalai Lama or Joseph Smith, you, I could tell you all of those, and none of you would most likely or hopefully would say that you follow them. You would probably cringe a little bit and say, not me. And so that's not what we're talking about here. Those, those are false prophets, and if you follow them, please come talk to me later. But right now, those are not who we're talking about. This is a warning for us for a reason. So the question you should be asking your mind right now is how? How am I able to tell the difference if they can disguise themselves as the ones to be trusted? Matthew 7, 16-17 says it like this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about how we can figure out who is a true prophet and who is a false prophet. It's important. This text is a warning to you um, on the road to destruction. 
When the Bible talks about fruit, it is referring to the result of something. Rather that be the result or the outpouring of the word and grace of God, or the outpouring of our sinfulness. They both produce fruit. He uses this grapes on thorn bushes and figs on thistles, understanding that those things don't go together. It's, it's just as if, I don't bake, but this is my example. It's as if you put flour and eggs and sugar or whatever else it is you use to make a cake and it comes out as meatloaf. <laughs> You'd probably be scratching your head wondering what type of easy bake oven you used. If sinfulness is all that we put in our life, our fruits will show sinfulness. If our life is marked with the pursuit of Jesus Christ, then our fruits will show faithfulness to God's grace. To make matters even more serious, he concludes this section at the end of 20 by reiterating himself that you will recognize them by their fruit, further emphasizing that what comes out of them is in direct reflection of what, of what is within their hearts. So the Bible talks about two ways fruits shown. So bear with me a little bit here. We got a lot of point ones and 1.1s and 1.2s and things like that. But we're going to start with point one here. The Bible really talks... Oh, said that already. Wait, uh, so the one way that you can um, know by their fruits, the most common way, is you will know them by their doctrine or by what they are teaching. This seems to be the most common way people are led astray. People begin to teach the word of God, and yet they clearly have no reason to be teaching it at all. The doctrine of the, of the teacher is important. You have to be able to, to, to know. You don't come to church list wanting to listen to people that are just going to tell you lies. That would be such a waste of time. God, the, the call of, of the prophet and the call of the teacher is a call directly by God. So if they don't have that call, then they should not be here. Doctrine and what they are, are leading their people with and to is important. And in the same way, if I was up here teaching and I was saying heresy and you could back it up with scripture, I would hope that you would come to me or somebody in the church to say, hey, this guy's wrong. There's accountability there. And if you didn't do it, I would be concerned about how the church views itself. The shepherd should never lead their sheep to the wolves' den. There seems to be common themes with false teachers in our world. I'm going to talk a little bit about what some of these common themes are. They, see, they usually teach similar doctrine, act similar ways. Sometimes they're more noticeable than others. So let me layer this out for you a little bit. There's three types of ways false doctrine. So this is 1.1. So we're still on point one. Uh, one way you know by the fruit is their doctrine. 1.1, we're going to talk about some doctrines that are common that people believe that lead them on the road to destruction or the uh, wide road. Point number one. First way is they deny suffering as a blessing and a, and a guarantee. So false prophets deny suffering in our life as a blessing and a guarantee. These are the Joel Osteens 
who claim that we were created to receive our blessings now if only we give and do good. We can get a big house and a nice car. Your family will be healed from cancer. If only you just give more. If you just serve more. Knowing good and well, worldly riches do not keep you from suffering. We just talked about this a couple weeks ago in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then he goes on to say, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So point number one, we have all of these false teachers who are are preaching that you can have the nicest things in the world. And all you have to do is just give with their understanding that if you just do good things, you will receive blessings on this earth. And what we know on this earth is that our blessings come in Christ. Our blessings only come in Christ. They don't come in your house and your car. They don't come in your job and your money. The blessings that we receive are from Christ or in Christ. John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So not only do they deny suffering as a blessing, but as a, as a guarantee. They refuse to think that if they don't have nice cars or they don't have nice houses, that they're not blessed. Or they, they believe that. That if they don't have the things of this world, that they're not blessed. What a sad thought for the people that don't have those things. If you have nothing in this world, but you still have Christ, you are more blessed than the rich man. They refuse to believe that the suffering that you go through, or they they want to think that because you have nothing is actually suffering. And yet we know that oftentimes when we have nothing, we still have Christ. It doesn't feel like suffering at all. But they also refuse to believe that suffering is a guarantee. That if you just gave more, then your family can be healed of cancer. And what we know about this church is that if, if that was true, we wouldn't have cancer. None of us. Our families wouldn't have cancer. Our people, our friends, the people in our communities would not have cancer if that was true. Suffering is inevitable because of our sinfulness. We suffer and we will suffer. In John 16, let me read it again. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation, and yet we still have Christ. If your prophet is teaching that life will be good, that you will always have things in this world, if you just give more and serve more, Please hear me now. Run. Giving money to the church does not guarantee that you have more money later. It's not a guarantee. 
does not guarantee that your family member will not die from cancer. It does not guarantee salvation. It guarantees that you are worshiping God rather than your possessions. And your life will be blessed by just being in intimate relationship with God rather than your possessions. Faithful Christians will not cling to what is seen, but they will focus on Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is our satisfaction and his glory is our reward. Point, that's point 1.1. 1.2. Second way is they choose not to teach on holiness, righteousness, justice, and they especially won't teach on the wrath of God. They won't teach on this because it's hard. It's uneasy. It makes the congregation begin to squirm. It's as if your dad was just talking to you about the birds and the bees for the first time. So they preach love only. They believe in these other attributes of God, but they don't want to disturb the people, so they only preach what is comfortable. And when you only think of God as the hippie God from the 70s who's white and wears these John Lennon glasses and has a tie-dye shirt and is holding up the peace sign and says, love and peace, then what does that say how you view yourself? You could be whatever you want to be. You could do whatever you want to do. I think there's probably a song about it. And guess what? You probably believe that God will just love you through it. Listen. If you, if you are uncomfortable with the truthfulness of the word and you choose to ignore the text that, that you do not understand, the if you, if you choose to ignore hard texts, if you are uncomfortable with hard che- texts and you ignore them, then you are also uncomfortable with God. Because this is the word of God. If, if God being a wrathful God makes you th- say, that's not the God I know, but scripture says he's a wrathful, he is wrathful, then you don't know the God of the Bible. False prophets are afraid to preach these texts but they, because they don't want to lose, lose the, their people from the congregation. But we should preach these texts faithfully or else we'll lose the congregation to the grasp of hell. Don't run from these texts. Take them as truth and evaluate your heart. Scripture should make you uncomfortable, but it should draw you back to Scripture. Do not run from Scripture. When it talks about God being holy and righteous and and, and just, and that He is a wrathful God, do not run, for God is who God is, and He is faithful and true and perfect. This is what the Bible is teaching us. It's not teaching us prosperity gospel. It's not teaching us that the only attribute of God is love. God is perfect and he is holy. And so what the Bible teaches about him should be laid on our hearts and understood as true. And if that made you uncomfortable, then understanding the sinfulness of man probably also makes you uncomfortable 
God's word teaches us that we are sinful fallen men who are not holy nor just. And daily we need to die to ourselves in obedience to the Lord. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we all deserve hell. And God, in his perfect holiness and grace, sent his perfect son who poured himself out on the cross. He was obedient to the Father until death, covering the wrath of God, not exempting us from hell, but cleansing our sins by the blood of Jesus if he so chooses. So in this text, the key word that I want to talk about here in just a very brief discussion is subtly. False prophets are hard to tell sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes they're easy, but sometimes they're really, really hard. Subtly, but surely, if you are not discerning truth from falsehoods, You will continue down the road of destruction without you even knowing it. If no one tells you about scripture, if no one warns you, you will continually continually and subtly get closer and closer to destruction, narrowing or or walking on the wide road and, and furthering away from the narrow road. Jesus is warning of this to us because we, it is hard. It is hard to tell. We have to understand that daily we have to fight with the teaching of the word and what is in scripture. We have to take what each pastor is telling you, whether it's Dustin or Mark or any other pastors that you had before. You have to take for what they have said and say, okay, what does scripture say? Does this align with scripture? Because if it doesn't, then they're wrong. The Bible's not wrong. They are wrong. The third part of how you will know on this side here, 1.3. You'll know if they deny the power of God and the workings of the Trinity. Bill Johnson is a pastor in Redding, California, so basically our backyard here. Maybe you haven't heard of Bethel Church or Bill Johnson, but you've heard of Jesus Culture which is a worship team. Um, It is a new wave of uh, worship at our time right now. I graduated from Cal Baptist, and though this shouldn't discourage you, I hear it all the time there. Um, Our young adults are listening to Jesus' culture often without understanding what it really is saying. They're appealing to the emotions of the people, and we only sing about how great we are rather than how great God is to save a sinner like me. Worship is an easy way to be led astray because in music, you feel something. It's like, you know, it's like when, when, when you're listening to this great song and 30 seconds ago you were just angry and someone made you mad at work and then a great song comes on the radio and then all of a sudden your mood just switches. You feel something in music and it, it appeals to your emotions and it, it draws you closer to what it's saying. And yet, how many times have I heard, well, I don't really listen to the words, but I like the beat. It's the same for worship. I like the emotion. I like the cool guitar solo. Um, But maybe the words are a little off. 
Maybe I don't agree with that part, or maybe I'll just justify this part because the song's just really great. And subtly but surely, it's leading you down the wide road. Bill Johnson himself has a book. Um, I'm not going to say the name. You probably can Google it if you want. But on page 34 of this book, he says, Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship with God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable. John 10.30 is very clear in saying, I and the Father are one. God didn't perform miracles as separate from God. We know that the Son is in cahoots with the Father who's in cahoots with the Spirit and who's in cahoots with the uh, Son. Maybe cahoots is not a good word to use, but uh, they love each other and they're one. (laughs) Um, If the words of prophets are against the word of God, know this. Hebrews 6 states that it is God who cannot lie. Anyone saying things that are contrary to the word of God are liars themselves. And they're deceivers. And they're leading you astray. And to be clear, they're leading you subtly to hell. And it might sound like I'm repeating myself, but I'm hoping you get the point. If we are not examining the people that we're listening to, and we're just allowing them them, to lead us to wherever they desire to lead us, then you too might be on the road to hell. I too might be on the road to hell. Jesus, in these past two, today and yesterday, this is the second time where he's talked about destruction. A little before this, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. There's a lot of people that are being led down the narrow road. These churches that we've talked about um, are big churches. Joel Osteen's church is thousands and thousands. I mean, they bought the old, um, what is it, the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. So it's not a small church. Um, If we were in that church, you probably wouldn't be able to hear anything. Um, And uh, Bethel's church just graduated 3,000 students from their school of supernatural ministry. It's not dying by any means. False prophecy, false prophets, false teachers come from all the way from Abraham... Not Abraham. Abraham wasn't a false teacher. But prophets in general come from this time of Abraham. And then false prophets have come about after that as well. This isn't new. And this will not die until Jesus returns. We need to watch out. So that concludes that we will know them by their doctrine. The second way that we see the fruit in their lives is is that we will know them by their life. So oftentimes when the Bible is talking about fruit, when it's not talking about actual fruit, but 
Uh, this type of fruit here, it's talking about what they say and what they do, in word and in, in deed. Most of the guys that we are talking about here, or false prophets in general, it doesn't have to be just Joel Osteen, and it's not just Joel Osteen, and it's not just Bill Johnson. It could be anywhere. It could be San Diego. I'm from Bakersfield. It could be even in a cool place like Bakersfield. Um, <laughs> um, they could be anywhere. And, and, and most of these guys are really nice people. They appeal to you as a friend or a family member. It's the guy that's coming into church smiling all the time. They come early and they stay long. They hold your baby when you bring them in for the first time. They cry with you when you lost a family member and when you need them, they're at your front doorstep. Just because they are great people does not make them saved, nor does it make them prophets or true prophets. I know plenty of people, and so do you, most likely, who are really nice people, and they're really fun to hang out with. And they love people, and they're happy, but they do not know Jesus. It's this sense that we, or it's this idea that we are all created in the image of God, which means that there are some attributes that God has that flows out of all people just because we are made in the image of God. But just because we are made in the image of God does not make you saved or a true teacher. In the beginning of this sermon, so a couple of pages back in Matthew, in the very beginning actually, it talks about how there is a, a different set of righteousness that the world, that, that, that we're required to as, to be as. We're, a, a true believer has a radically different life than, than the rest of the world. We're not called to be like everyone else. And, and in the beginning of this sermon on the mount, Jesus states that the blessed are the meek. They are the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. They are pure in heart. They are peacemakers, and they will endure persecution. And then we have the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, 24. You probably know the song. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's, there's parts of that where we can pick out of there and say, these prophets got that going on. They're gentle. They're kind. They're patient. And you can probably go a few more. But what they don't have at the end of Galatians 5.24 is, is when it says, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You can pick apart attributes and say, those guys have it. But you can't pick apart the fact that they do not know Christ. You can't exempt them from crucifying the flesh and the passions that they have and the desires that they have. And, and, and the crazy thing is, is that you may not know them by their fruits right away. 
Like the story that I was telling a little bit ago, how that guy was my friend in my class, and slowly but surely, um, he just gave up all of my stuff. Um, and at the end, I didn't realize the evilness of his heart um, until, until the very end. It may take a year, or it may take longer, but the word know that Jesus is using is intimate and factual. He's telling you that you will know This isn't you may know. This isn't if you know. This is you will know. Day by day, they begin to preach the sermon text, but behind closed doors, they're maybe cheating on their wives or they're stealing or they're having the celebrity mentality, believing that they're better than everybody. Maybe they just don't know Christ, that God has not saved them. Walking around with nice cars and spending their money on million-dollar vacations to the Bahamas, you realize that what they do at church is not who they are outside of church. And most of the time, when their life is beginning to turn away from Jesus, you will also hear it in their sermons. Gunther and I were talking about this a little bit ago. Um, I was watching this reality TV show one time, um, and this young lady was on TV, and she was crying, and she was telling her story like they all do um, in, in an emotional way. Um, and she was telling about how she was a pastor's kid of a famous pastor. I don't remember his name. Um, of a famous pastor who was a prosperity gospel pastor, had thousands and thousands of people, and they all loved him, and he was wealthy, and their family was wealthy, and they enjoyed everything. And then she started weeping and said, but they lost it all because he began to believe, and he started teaching that there was no hell. Amen, right? And people slowly begin to think that just because their leaders are saying all of these things that they must be right. But their fruits begin to show. Maybe originally when people started coming to the church, they loved him and he was maybe saying good things and you couldn't tell any difference. But slowly but surely, he came to the conclusion that there was no hell. And his fruits began to show. Without a radical working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the commitment to, our, to the pursuit of holiness, the bad fruit will soon grow. You can't cover it up for long. It's as if you hang up a TV. We all have these situations in our life, or in our life, in our house. I'm trying to be overly applicable, I guess. In our house, um, where maybe we put a tree in front of a water stain on our wall, Maybe we put a picture frame um, over the rotted part of our wall, or maybe um, we do whatever it takes in our house to cover up the, the rot or whatever's behind it. Maybe we paint it. Um, this is the story of my family. Um, we put a TV over a rotted spot in our house, expecting the uh, visitors to not see it. And slowly but surely, um, the wall began to decay, and the TV fell. And what we know is that slowly but surely, the bad fruit began to show. You can't put a Christmas tree ornament on a Christmas tree year-round and expecting the Christmas tree to be pretty. It's going to be ugly. Time will soon reveal the fruits of the false teachers. The churches may be full 
but the hearts of the people in the building are empty. Verse 19 says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like I said again, this is the second time it's talking about punishment or thrown into the fire in just a couple verses. False prophets will not be on the road of life. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And guess what? They are taking millions of people with them. You and I are warned by Jesus, the true prophet. We need to discern who is a false prophet and who is a true prophet. So how can you discern? Let me say this real quickly. If you are not reading your word, if you are not committing yourself to Christ, you will not be able to discern between a true and a false prophet. If you are not spending your time meditating on the things that God says or committing yourselves to the obedience of Christ, you will not be able to discern. There's a huge statistics of, a statistic of people that claim to be Christian and yet they don't read the word. We have a misconception of what the Bible is. We often think of it as just another book in our bookshelf, and yet we don't realize, or we, sh- we should, but we don't realize that this is the actual word of God in written form. What he says should not be taken lightly. And if you are expecting to be... If, if you're expecting to discern between who is on the narrow road and who is on the wide road, then you better start reading now. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait till you have an obvious, disobedient, false prophet. Read it now. Because if you wait 10 years, you might be led astray for those whole 10 years. Or maybe you won't see it at all. And maybe that we are the ones on the wide road and we just don't know it. We need to be able to discern so that we can know between truth and falsehoods. Jesus is very clear that at at this point in the text, after we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, that every rotten tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. No exceptions. Those who are teaching a gospel that does not reflect the God of his own words is guaranteed for punishment. It's very clear. They're grabbing your hand and taking you down the road to destruction. Day by day, they're corrupting your mind to believe that you are something you are not. Jesus is something that he is not. That Christianity is something it is not. Cling to the word of God and know who is leading you. We need to know who is leading us by this warning. Let's pray. God, may we know who we're listening to. God, may it not just be about whether we are able to discern or not, God, but because we 